welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, fat-headed moron who can't appreciate classic art. The Mona Lisa, (laughs) eh, Beethoven, I get it. Tokyo Story, go fuck yourself with it. (laughs) Beethoven the dog, though, I bet Jason would appreciate, I think. Written by John Hughes. The first one's written by John Hughes, so I'll take it. So, So, yes, as Jason implies, there are just says right out, we're talking about Tokyo Story. This is our season on the films of 1953. We're here at our foreign film pick, and it is Tokyo Story from Japanese filmmaker Yasujiro Ozu. And just like a day or two before we recorded this, the most recent sight and sound list from the uh, British Film Institute and the Sight and Sound magazine, which is, I would say, the most highly regarded sort of prestigious designation of the greatest films ever made. It's been going every 10 years since 1952. And in the most recent version in 2022, Tokyo Story was voted at number four among the greatest films of all time. So when you have one of the greatest films of all time, I feel like there's really no other choice for us to cover for this year. I don't remember what else we talked about, but to me, it was like, this has to be it. And Jason says, Tokyo Story. What did you say? Go fuck yourself, Tokyo Story? Is that what you said? No, I said, go fuck yourself with Tokyo Story. All right. Yeah. So if you want, I can be more explicit if you want to know how to do that. We can get you one of those Criterion DVDs and then, you know, put it around. Let's just stop right there. I don't even (laughs) want to know where that's headed, Jason. So, Josh, I was when we planned out this season, this is one I had like zoned in on, too. Like I had never seen it. I know it's a classic and um, I was really excited to watch it. And uh, uh, 1953, Josh, is really, really making me question. everything about the world yeah jason has not been all that enthused (laughs) about most of the films that we've been talking about here in this year 1953 and i think you're i i was with you in the sense that and i think you even said at the end of the last episode looking forward to this like oh this is this is one that maybe it'll work out after a few that you really didn't care for so I, I kind of was hoping for that as well, that it seemed like maybe Hollywood cinema of 1953 wasn't connecting with you, but yeah. foreign cinema maybe would. Right. Kind of like uh, our 67 season. Not to say there weren't good American movies in there. There were, but I really, really gravitated towards all the French New Wave stuff we were doing there. So, yeah, I don't know, Josh. Just <laughs> sight and sound will never <laughs> accept me now, Josh. <laughs> no, you will not. <laughs> get to participate none of us voted in that poll it's bad enough you cucks at the las vegas film <laughs> critics society refused to let me in but now sight and sound on top of it mm. a legitimate uh industry you know group this is just not going well for me no no it's not and i don't think you're going to convince anyone to let you in over the course of this episode <laughs> but uh, despite jason's negative response tokyo everyone story, else in the world loves it yes, forever tokyo story <laughs> is a classic and was highly acclaimed at the time that it was released uh this is as we talked about in our episode on the wages of fear this is a time when foreign films took quite a while 
to get to the United States. And the wages of fear took less time, although still quite a while. But uh, Tokyo Story, while it was released in 1953, in November 1953 in Japan, where it became the eighth highest grossing movie of the year that year in Japan, it did not get a release in the United States until 1972. So almost 20 years later, it took for not only this film, but it seems like a lot of Japanese cinema in general and the works of Ozu, who was an incredibly prolific filmmaker and had been working since 1927. So many, many years working in Japan as an acclaimed filmmaker there. I think Kurosawa probably was the first Japanese filmmaker to really break through in the U.S., but it took a long time. And and even when this movie was released, it was it, it seemed to me it was mainly just in some some larger cities at like art house kinds of cinemas. And it was not really widely appreciated or even viewed in the U.S. for quite some time. It was uh, it was deemed too Japanese to release as if like you watch this and you're like, well, this covers the scope of everything Japanese, you know, like it's a ridiculous thing to say, especially if you watch the Kurosawa movie. This is nothing like that, you right. know, so um, it's silly. However, Josh, uh, while while our American film counterparts didn't give it much love till 72 in 1958, it did win the Sutherland Trophy from the British Film Institute. Uh, which goes to the maker of the most original and imaginative film introduced at the National Film Theater during the year. And can I just say the Sutherland Trophy sounds like the most British trophy you can win. Uh, yeah, so it seems like it got some kind of release in in the UK then in 1958 when it won that trophy. Although it seems like it maybe just played at that one theater, maybe like one time or something to qualify for the trophy. And there was a wider release. I think it was maybe in 1968 when it reached uh, a wider uh, sort of audience in the UK. I'm not sure. But it was a definitely a very, very slow rollout of, of this film. And so looking at reviews... Usually the idea for me with finding these reviews is to see what critics said at the time the movie was released, but uh, my research skills are not enough to find Japanese newspaper <laughs> film critic reviews from 1953 and translate them. So instead, I have reviews from 1972 from the initial American release. So Classic Las Vegas Film Society cuck move. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> so that does mean that we get to talk about Roger Ebert as we always have, but have not gotten to in this season, because in 1972, he was reviewing films and he said, Yasujiro Ozu's Tokyo Story tells a tale as simple and universal as life itself. It is about a few ordinary days in the lives of some ordinary people, and then about the unanticipated death of one of them. What it tells us about the nature of life or death is not new or original. What could be? But it is true. Tokyo Story moves quite slowly by our Western standards and requires more patience at first than some moviegoers may be willing to supply. Its effect is cumulative, however. The pace comes to seem perfectly suited to the material. So I'm thinking back because, uh, you know, I'm going to defend myself a little here, Josh. As you I'm not going to let you just rake me over the coals for an entire episode. I have said nothing. Um, <laughs> because I like a lot of these slow moving 
film, small stories. We know that. I mean, you know, go back to the station agent where it's just a story of friendship, very, very simple, very, uh, you know, basic in the maneuvering, but it's the acting and the way the story unfolds and, um, you know, that makes it so interesting. And I just, I didn't, Dude, I know why people love this movie, but I'm like, come on. Why do you love this movie? <laughs> you know, but you don't know. Um, yeah, I, I just every every positive resonating thing on this thing. I'm just like, I'm not feeling this. I am. A, I am a man out of time. I am a man without a home. Uh, if Tokyo is that home. Yeah. <laughs> or the Tokyo story is that home. <laughs> um, see, I you're saying you're going to defend yourself as if you expect me to just completely shoot down everything that you have to say. And I don't necessarily disagree. I think you disliked this movie a lot more than I did. And I wouldn't even say that I disliked it, but it definitely didn't reach me in the sort of powerful way that it seems to reach a lot of people and certainly to be elevated to the place of one of the greatest films ever made. I do think that what Ebert says here is right, where for a lot of the film, it was hard for me to remain engaged with it, that it it is really slow. Even if you think that's a, a brilliant approach, you can't deny that it is very slow. And it was it was an effort for me to to kind of get through it for a while. But I think Ebert is right that the effect is cumulative, that to me, the ending of this film is really emotionally powerful. And I felt like because I had spent all this time with this family over the course of the film, it resonated with me more. So in the last really like five or 10 minutes of the movie, almost, I started to think, I feel like there's a lot of value here that maybe I didn't appreciate initially. Yeah, see, I get it. I just completely disagree with you. All right. Fair enough. Um, so the uh, the review by Kenneth Turan in the LA Times, I think, was often credited with um, publicizing this film to a wider audience and with getting people interested in seeing Ozu films. And he certainly was a fan. He said, often regarded as Ozu's greatest film and said to be his favorite, Tokyo Story is a masterpiece of subtlety and simplicity. Long before the term generation gap was coined, Ozu probed it profoundly and furthermore protested the deteriorating quality of overpopulated urban life. In a sense, Tokyo's story can be taken as a stricture against children who neglect their parents and forget they aren't going to live forever. But this is just a starting point. Like all great artists, Ozu is openly committed, in his instance, to tradition, but is capable of viewing individuals and situations in the round and with compassion. Change, and beyond it, the fleetingness of life itself, is what Ozu laments so eloquently while always counseling the acceptance of the inevitable. Yeah. So this goes back to what you're saying, right? Like this is about a, a family who kind of just um, doesn't appreciate what they have with their parents and everything. And as we know, one of the parents uh, gets sick and dies there at the end. And much like you're doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> I just had something in my throat. My soul has been dying this entire season of awesome movie year. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, and then all the kids come and, you, you know, they act like they love the mom and i don't know man fuck these kids dude <laughs> fuck them kids right um <laughs> yeah and so this is why it doesn't resonate for me right i get the idea i mean it's just cats in the cradle right or the giving tree or something like that yeah something that does resonate for me those stories of 
you know, uh, appreciating things that you don't have forever. And, you know, as you get older, you learn um, maybe those things that are fleeting, you have to give more time and appreciation to. But I feel like this just hits you over the head with the hammer about that for two hours and 15 minutes. I mean, I understand that maybe this didn't resonate with you, but the idea that this movie is hitting you over the head with anything, I think, is is completely wrong. This is it is very subtle. If anything, I would complain at times that the movie is a little obtuse about what it's trying to do. No, because all the kids, all they ever say is, oh, you can't be here. I have a meeting. You can't be here. I have to do this. We're sending you to the spa today. They literally say the same thing for two hours, two fucking hours of the same sentence, Josh. And then in the last five minutes, when the mom dies, they're like, ah, we should have we should have really uh, had Thanksgiving with her. Thanksgiving, a popular holiday. You know what I mean. I'm obviously being a, a joker here, <laughs> yes, Josh. You're but, a joker. You know, That's what you are. I mean, I, I didn't feel like any of the um, the turnaround of those feelings was earned other than the fact that the mom died. I mean, but I feel like part of the point was that there really wasn't a turnaround in feelings. In they just keep moving on. They, they, just they keep came going because and... it was an obligation. They showed up because that's what you do when your mother is dying. And they kind of complained about it um, as right. they were as they were preparing to go. And the the daughter and the son, who are the most uh, sort of ungrateful, are talking about how oh, they need to make these arrangements with their jobs and whatever. And right, then, and the as daughter so, wants the hand me downs now already and everything. Right, so. she's asking right away for the mom's clothes, and as soon as it's possible to leave and go back to Tokyo, they do. So I don't think there's really a turnaround per se. Yeah, maybe I said that wrong. I mean, the artifice of such a maneuver or whatever. But you know, because the one who cares the most about there is the daughter-in-law, who is the widow of their son who died in war. And then the daughter who still lives at home, right? right? Those are really the characters that we get those moments with where like the old people get to say, go out and live your life. Yes, because they're Morgan Freeman, maybe in the Shawshank Redemption. Know. Is that what's <laughs> happening there? Don't know. I got right. Well, Jason, because we talked um, before recording this and I knew how much you hated this movie, I actually did find a somewhat negative review from 1972 just for you. So... Stanley Eichelbaum in the San Francisco Examiner said, a good workmanlike film that shows its age, it isn't likely to make an extraordinary impression on many, but the most patient cultists willing to ignore its thoroughly oriental crawling pace, which the Japanese cinema has largely abandoned in recent years. Yet it's not exactly an unrewarding film. I was never tempted to leave though I found the length excessive for what Ozu attempted to depict in his plotless, fundamentally undramatic study of domestic life amid the changing traditions of a materialistic society that overtook Japan after World War II. There's no doubt that Ozu was a master of homely realism, but the static camera work and interminably long scenes are difficult to take, especially since most of the film is set indoors in claustrophobically small rooms. Nothing much happens to dispel the family's boredom. Yeah, man. I, Eichelbaum, <laughs> he gets it. Wow. That, that's like perfect. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, and a lot of... He, he's complimentary uh, elsewhere in the review, but a lot of it feels like sort of backhanded compliments as well. And yeah, he spends a lot yeah. of time talking about how other critics are crazy for praising this movie as a like lost masterpiece. 
Yeah, I'm a, I'm on Team Eichelbaum, Josh. Right. <laughs> so sign me up for Eichelbaum U. Yeah, well, I figured that would be uh, that would be more along the lines of. But no, but I mean, look, if we're gonna you know be a little serious about it, I agree with him. The scenes are too long, and they're circular. I I don't want to do this. Well, you have to do this, but I don't want to do this. Well, you have to do this. It, it just felt like so repetitive. We weren't getting anywhere. Yeah. And that really frustrated me because I don't even think that's representative of real dialogue. Like, you know, it would be, I don't want to do this. Well, you have to do this. Well, I want to do something else instead. Well, I can't help you do that. So, you know, you know what I mean? Like, I can give you specific examples if you want. Like, um, you have to leave the house because we're having a hairdresser's meeting here. Like, what an asshole thing to do to your parents anyway. And then, oh, I, I'll go stay uh, with my friend and you go hang out with your friends. Okay, I'll go hang out with my friends and then you go stay with your friend because the hairdresser is meeting is here. So we have to leave the house. It all just felt like they were repeating each other the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I I would disagree that that's not something that is realistic, whether it's something that belongs in a movie is a different question. But I do think especially because these care, the characters of the older couple, they're they're so out of their element and and put off by what's going on and what they what's unexpected that they've encountered to come when they come visit their children that they're they're sort of just talking it through between each other because they don't quite get it. Okay, but are they put off? I if I'm going with that, they never seem to have any emotional movement with that. Like they're like, "Okay, now we have to do this." And they just go do it. Like there's there doesn't seem to be any um change of emotion mood or uh difficulty like they're really inconveniencing us or anything they just they just go with the flow on everything well i think two things one i think there's a cultural difference there and this is another thing that's going on here and something that Acklebaum references is the idea of the changing culture in japan yes. post-world war ii that we're not necessarily super familiar with so there is i think a cultural difference there but i think also part of the point is that these are people who are accustomed to that they're going along with it because they don't know what else to do. And the idea that you that they're not inconvenienced or you don't understand that they're inconvenienced, I think is wrong. And I think there's at least scenes, you know, there's one scene where they talk about sort of how disappointed they are in the kids. And then they sort of re-talk themselves back into being proud of the kids. And that's a really telling moment, I think, of, of the perspective that they have generationally that's different from the perspective of their kids. Okay. Um... <laughs> I mean, yeah, I would just say that this is like I'm not an expert on uh, post World War II Japanese culture Nor by any means, Nor right? But yes, the the materialistic aspects of the younger people do not uh, conflate or uh, go with the values of the older people. But I still think like there's always the tradition of like right honor thy mother and father, which I which I think is a big thing in Japan, and I think this is like an extreme example of. None of that, right? So, you know, I don't know. Maybe uh, may, I, I wasn't alive in the 50s in the Japanese household. So I can't really say. I just felt like it rang hollow to me in a lot of ways. And again, everyone in the world loves this movie but me. Um, I mean, again, I wouldn't necessarily say that I love it. I, I feel like there was a lot that was rewarding about it, but it was an effort to get through in a lot of ways as well. Yeah, but you're just hiding your true feelings because you're in the bag for 1953. Hey, I mean, <laughs> if something is bad, like, I'm sure I'm happy to be negative about things if they're not good, you know? I mean, I am I am 
hoping that we will continue to explore the past of film history and that you'll be able to find things that you like about it. But Well, of course I like the past. I mean, we've gotten over this. It's not like this is the oldest movie I've ever watched and been like, I can't ever watch something here again or whatnot. Yeah. I just think this year I'm team Tarantino. The 50s suck. I mean, I think when Tarantino is talking about that, he's talking about a very narrow conception of like Hollywood movies from the 50s. I don't think Tarantino is thinking of Tokyo Story when he says that. I mean, you might be right. You might be wrong. I don't think you've would ever posed the question that, to him. Tarantino <laughs> likes Tokyo Story. And in fact, know. if we looked, he's probably one of the voters in this poll. I bet we could find his ballot. <laughs> and it may or may not have Tokyo Story on it. But um, no, I mean... I, I think this is definitely one of these movies that it has such a towering reputation that it's hard to come to it without large expectations. And I think it is also difficult to reconcile those expectations with the experience of watching the movie, which is slow, which is subdued, which doesn't like scream at you, this is the greatest movie ever made. I think whether you like them or not, watch Citizen Kane or watch Vertigo, to, you know, for example, of like the number two and number three movies from this most recent poll and number one and number two in a lot of other years. And those are movies that are bravura pieces of filmmaking, right? You watch those movies and you're very aware of what Orson Welles and Alfred Hitchcock are doing as filmmakers. You know, they announce themselves as important movies. That's not what's going on here. And I think it takes work and maybe not all the work is worth it. Tarantino, of course, uh, brought Shinya Tsukamoto, the director of Tetsuo, the Iron Man, over to America and his movies. So if there's two movies I would equate, Josh, it's Tokyo Story and Tetsuo, the no, Iron Man. No, I mean, obviously Tarantino is probably more drawn to samurai films than to Ozu <laughs> films, but I would be shocked if Tarantino thinks that Tokyo Story sucks. I mean, again, anyway, I, it doesn't matter one way or the other who thinks what. I mean, we're giving our opinions. And I I know we're putting a lot of emphasis on this list because it just came out. But I got a lot of issues with the entire list, Josh. All right. Well, that's maybe a separate podcast. But <laughs> as far as Tokyo Story goes, obviously, you've never seen this before. I assume you've never seen any other Ozu films. No. And that's sort of one of the things I was looking forward to. Right. You know, like. Um, you know, like Godard was a, a blind spot for me and it gave me an excuse to go back and watch Godard movies. And that was such an enjoyable process. After this one, I'm like, I don't know if I can do it. But and, you know, Ozu has so many lost movies from his silent period, which is would be interesting if they I doubt they'll ever recover him. But that would be an interesting look. I back thought you were going to well. say something like a, that they should lose the rest of his films. No, I don't want that. I want it all there so people can continue to tell me how wrong i am so yeah so you're so you probably won't watch another ozu film i probably will at some point yeah um after a good after long hot scalding shower <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean i i had never seen an ozu film either and this had certainly been on my in my queues and whatever various services for for a very long time so i was also eager for the chance to watch it and and it doesn't make me jumping at the opportunity to watch other Ozu films. There are a lot of them available on the Criterion channel right now, for example. And I I didn't have the time this week anyway, but even if I had, whether I would have jumped right into watching another Ozu film after this, I don't know. 
Um, but maybe, I mean, I will say, like, for example, when we were talking about John Cassavetes, to 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 join you in being a Philistine, Jason, you know, watching multiple Cassavetes films when we talked about his film Gloria, it was a really, I did not enjoy that experience at all. And I definitely felt like Ozu was was more maybe on my wavelength for whatever. Yeah, well, good. Then we won't both get raked over the coals in this episode. We've certainly both been, as we talked about before recording, I think the other really good example Paris, is Texas, Paris, Texas. Yeah. yeah, which people is universally beloved and both of us did not care for it all. So that's... God, this is... You know, it, it's feel good. horrible about myself. Variety of opinions. That's a good thing. So Dave is just like shaking his head at us this entire time. <laughs> For both on both sides. So, Dave, had you Pretty seen much. any Ozu films before? I had not seen any Ozu films. And just like you guys, I was really looking forward to it just to like kind of dig into that a little bit. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm in between you two, but I think I lean a little more towards Jason's uh, side on this one. I mean, it was just. That just makes me feel even worse. <laughs> you know, <what> yeah, right. <laughs> it was a process to get through. Yeah, it's sure. arduous. This is an arduous film to get through. And it's so crazy because it's like, it's arduous. I mean, uh, we can come back and talk. Yeah. Josh. I feel like I've, I've uh, beaten up this dead Japanese filmmaker enough okay. who lived with his mom his entire life until yeah. she died. And then he died shortly thereafter. What's up with that, Josh? You got any uh, theories on that? I, this is not the psychological analysis of filmmakers podcast, so I don't have anything about that. But okay, okay, we'll come right back and talk about more of our general thoughts on Tokyo Story. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1953. We are talking about our foreign film pick, Tokyo Story, from Japanese master Yasujiro Ozu. Uh, Jason hated it. <laughs> so, Josh, if you if you haven't seen it, right? Yeah. It's uh, these two old people who live in the countryside of Japan, right? Yeah. And uh, they just uh, they live with one of their daughters, and they're talking about how they're going to go visit their older children who live in Tokyo. Right. Mm, and one, and of, then, one of whom lives in uh, Osaka. I Osaka. Think. Right. Yep. And then they go to Tokyo and the children don't want him there. But the widow of the son uh, who died in war takes him out to do a few things. And then they keep coming back and the other children keep kicking him out. And then they talk for two hours and the camera never moves. And then uh, they go back and they visit the boy in Osaka. We don't see that. That's fine. And then the mom gets sick and dies, and uh, the old man is lonely, and the two women who actually cared for them are told, like, go go live life. And that's the whole movie, right? Yeah, pretty much. I would th say that that's, that's about the plot of it. I mean, I would dispute your characterization that the older children don't want them there. I think they are consumed with their lives and find it a bit convenient, but that they do also have the desire to see their parents and to try to spend time with them, but that they don't realize how little time they really will have. And that's sort mm. of part of the point of the death of the mother later in the film. But, um, but yeah, they're a bit rude. They're a bit rude. I think you're overstating perhaps how like disrespectful they are. If that's how you have to justify that, because that's how you treat your parents, Josh, <laughs> that's a whole nother situation here. I mean, dude, she she literally kicks them out. They go to like the uh, the 
the what the spa to stay at, right? Right. Which is in which, dude? What a boring sequence at a spa. It, which maybe was the what, point what of that. What did you want to happen in that sequence? Did Anything. You want some, like, I wanted bikinis or something. Uh, you know what, Josh? If you had just ended the sentence at "What did you want to happen?" at any point in the movie, I would have just said anything. You know, uh-huh. like, but I mean, all they're doing is sitting on a bed, fanning themselves, saying, "Maybe we should go back." Yes, maybe we should go back. Well, then, maybe we should go back. Well, do you want to go to the beach? No, let's go back. Okay, then let's go back. I found the dialogue. I mean, this is one of the things that really bothered me as like a writer, like, and all these, um, you know, sight and sound and this and that, like, if you have such, and I get it, there's translation, you know, there's maybe some of it's translation, but you can't tell me that the dialogue isn't super repetitive in just about every scene. I mean, it is repetitive. I feel like it didn't bother me nearly as much like that. Like I found a lot of things about this movie difficult, but that wasn't one of them. And and I do think that there's an element of this is the idea that these people don't or can't quite talk to each other. They're not emotionally expressive. There's this generation gap, as those reviews cite. And part of that is just endless small talk because you don't know what else to do to fill the space. Yeah, you might be right. I mean, like I said, maybe I missed the whole thing because I know we've talked about characters like this before that I've enjoyed. But yeah, this one, I, they just... Just went nowhere, like like an Ozu camera shot. It just was stationary the whole time. Yes, yeah, the camera. I mean, that's his deal, and it's often at a low angle, mimicking the the sitting on the tatami mats where they're right. they're often they're where they sleep and where they sit to eat and everything like that. But but Josh, okay, I I feel like I've said enough of like, <laughs> yay, you oh, know, this is what's this is what I didn't like, and this is what I didn't like. What what is it? What am I missing, Josh? Tell me what I'm missing. Well, I mean, I feel like in a way you aren't missing anything. It's just that you didn't like what is going on here. That I think a lot of what you're talking about is things that people would praise about this film. And I don't necessarily disagree with you. It is very slow. And there are a lot of scenes where they go, the scenes themselves go on for a long time. And you kind of have to struggle to figure out what is the purpose of this scene. Where are we going with this? Yeah. Um, and I think that some of that is an adjustment because Ozu isn't interested in where we are going. You know, he's not interested in the plot. It's not like he sure. lost the plot or forgot about the plot or something. That's not what he's aiming for. Here. And, and again, like, you know, I would say something uh, like there are link letter movies out there that are um, a bit shapeless with their plots that I love, you know, like. What is the plot of Dazed and Confused? It's the last day of school and there's a party. That's not really a plot. That's a starting point, right? But that's the whole thing. And I just, um, yeah, I just can't, I just couldn't get into this at all. Right. And that's why I'm saying that, like, I don't think it's that people would always dispute where you say the movie is doing this and other people would say, no, the movie is not doing that. I think it's just whether you appreciate that or not in in this particular context. And I'm with you also in that there are a lot of really slow movies that I enjoy a lot more than this, that I can really get into a lot more. And I think there's a level of difficulty in engaging with the characters in this film that is at least partially on purpose because these are people who have difficulty engaging with each other. But I think that makes it more difficult as an audience member, as a viewer, to get fully invested in this film. On the other hand, you know, you look through Letterboxd, for example, and a lot of the positive reviews are not just 
oh, the formalism or the cinematic achievement of this film, but it's like, this movie broke me emotionally. And that is just, yeah. I, even when I liked it, especially the, the very, very end, where I did feel a bit a slight emotion, it, it, the level to which people respond to this movie was something that was completely foreign to me. Yeah, it might have broke me, but it wasn't because <laughs> of an emotional situation. Right. What 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 were the things that you liked about it? Um, I mean, I think again, I did like that cumulative power, and I you know it takes a while, at least for me, it took a little while to work out all who all the characters are and what are their relationships to each other because he doesn't. He just kind of drops you into that. And especially because with Japanese culture or whatever the reason is, maybe it's just a translation thing or whatever, the the people who are not their children, their their in-laws and stuff, they call them mother and father as well. So there's a lot of like, is this their biological child or is this the spouse of the child? And who is uh, Noriko, who, as you mentioned, is the, the daughter-in-law, who's the widow of their son who died in World War II. Is that that's no, that's not her daughter. That's that's not their daughter. That's their their daughter in law. So I feel like I spent half an hour of this movie, maybe just getting a handle on the relationships between the characters. Yeah, but, I, I it get, gets confusing sometimes. Yeah. But but once I did, I felt like, again, it's that cumulative power that you're you're getting to know these people for a long enough time that you do feel like you understand them. And I, I you know, the thing that I liked most about this film I would say is uh, Setsuko Hara's performance as Noriko, who is the daughter-in-law. And uh, Setsuko Hara is considered like the greatest actress in Japanese history. So to say that I liked her performance is kind of basic, but I think she brings a lot for a movie where, as we've said, like the characters often have a lot of difficulty expressing their emotions. And that's kind of the point that she really gives you a glimpse into what's going on beneath the surface when the character is maybe not saying a whole lot. And she's the one who kind of has, if not the last word in the film, one of the last words where she's talking to Kyoko, the other, the daughter who still lives with them at home. And they, they talk about their disappointments in the way that the other children have reacted and just the general trajectory of life. Um, and, and that moment, I think, got to me. And in part, because you've, you've understood these people and what they've gone through and what they've gone through isn't necessarily like this isn't a movie with giant, horrible tragedy. It's everyday experiences. I mean, a son, a son dying in a war is a tragedy. Well, right. I mean, and that's happens. heartless. Fuck. <laughs> that happens off screen prior to the film. What I'm saying is that, you know, for a post-World War II Japanese, this isn't a movie about the atomic bomb. This isn't right. a movie that's set during the war. This is a movie about relatively small everyday occurrences. But I think it, it gets that, that sort of sadness of life there by the end. Now, did I feel like every moment of the two hours and 15 minutes leading up to that was worth it? Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there's a stoicism about like even the dead son where they're like, oh, I'm lucky I get to sleep in my dead son's bed tonight or something. And they're yeah. like, you know, they pretty much compartmentalized, you know, and put him away. All right. You know, yeah. and everything. And maybe again, maybe that's a cultural difference. Maybe that's just a choice here, you know, and whatnot. Um, yeah, I thought when um, uh, the, the uh, father was with the other older men talking about how their lives have turned out, at least that took me in a different direction for a minute, you know? Yeah, I like that scene where he goes out and gets drunk. And it also relates to the idea they talk about how he used to be this terrible drunk and that he cleaned up his act after the youngest daughter was born. And now he's almost reverting because he's seen the disappointment of how his children have turned out or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I should have gotten drunk before I watched this movie. 
<laughs> I don't think that would have helped. But uh, I did, you know, I, I neglected to bring this up in the earlier segment, but I wanted to ask if you've ever seen the Leo McCary film Make Way for Tomorrow that is sort of the inspiration for this movie. No, I would like to see that. And, you know, there have been two remakes of uh, the film Cherry Blossoms and Tokyo Family. Have you ever seen either of those? No, and I think those are all, I think they're all kind of like loose remakes in a way. And and I have seen Make Way for Tomorrow. And this is not, I, I would hesitate to call this a remake because the, the plot is very, very different. Um, and I think maybe you'd appreciate Make Way for Tomorrow more because there is more sort of urgency to the story. The parents aren't just going to visit their children. They've actually been, it's set during the Great Depression in the US and they've been evicted from their home. They have nowhere to live. And so they are urgently needing, you know, they're not just staying there on vacation. They need somewhere yeah, to live. There. And the children are being ungrateful and trying to sort of all pass the parents off among the different children. And it, it has a, maybe not a more tragic ending, a differently tragic ending. So, um, yeah, but I remember that sounds that. good. I'd like to see that. Yeah. I mean, and it's another classic film and it's, uh, you know, very emotional, maybe more emotionally expressive than this. Well, it's film. not the ninth best movie of all time. Fourth best movie of all time. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that was a movie too, where I felt like I appreciated kind of what it was doing, but it didn't, it's another one. If you look up reviews of that movie, People are like, this movie devastated me emotionally and I didn't quite feel it. I remember in that movie being like, you know what? I'm kind of with the kids. These parents are, are like, I wouldn't do this either. Again, we get a glimpse into Josh and how he treats his parents. I have two questions. Yeah. Uh, Dave, you said you're kind of in between us. Go, go ahead, Dave. Take your stance in the middle of me and Josh like you've dreamt about so many times before. That's oh, yeah, necessary. absolutely. <laughs> Whatever, uh, Josh. We could have a three-way <laughs> lovemaking session, and it would be fun. That's, as long as we don't record <laughs> it for a podcast, it wouldn't be fun for any of us. But <laughs> yeah. someone would find it fun. <laughs> Dave, what did you think of Tokyo? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I knew th I knew that part of the draw with Ozu is that like naturalistic style, and I was like, "Yep, it's here." You know? <laughs> but other than that, like, I just yeah, it was like. What is there story-wise or character-wise? Like, I just, I just didn't connect to these characters. I didn't really care that much about what anybody was going through, and it was, it was just difficult to to get through. Like I said earlier, like, you know, I like the music. I will say that. Yeah, music was good. Speaking of which, what about the uh, David Lee Roth song "Tokyo Story"? I, I, I'm I, sure it's not, but I would love if the lyrics were about the Ozu film. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I don't disagree. It was hard for me. To, and I would say, like, I think, Jason, we, we were talking on the phone after the first hour. And then I, after I watched the first hour, and I, you know, it was definitely like it had been a chore at that point. And I'm like, I hope that I'm going to get to something here that makes this feel worthwhile. And, I think it does, but maybe I, it wouldn't, it, you know, I don't blame anyone who would feels like it's not worth the effort, really. No. Thank you, you Tokyo story stan. Mm, yeah. Did you have, you had another you, point to make, Jason? You simp for Tokyo story. Yes. <laughs> well, you said it didn't break you emotionally. I was just going to say we should all name a movie that did break us emotionally. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, I hadn't, but I mean, I feel like that's, uh, uh, you know, before sunset. Or uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, or other movies that have the word "sun" in the title, maybe. Yeah, I like. Well, I love both those. I, movies, I do. Those are two but, of my favorite movies know. of all time, and those are movies that I, if I, I've seen them, if I watch either of those movies, I will be crying. You know, absolutely. Yeah. 
Florida Project for me, guys. Yeah, that's a good one. The ending of that movie that got got me yeah. crazy. I mean, honestly, uh, as recently as last year, dude, I wept during Coda. I know that uh, that that was the point of it, but uh, you know, like sometimes movies like that or Life is Beautiful, they when they get you, they get you. So you're saying you want a movie that is shamelessly manipulative rather than naturalistic? No, I love I love uh, the two movies you you mentioned, but I didn't cry like little babies during them or anything. Okay, so. yeah, I'm not a fan of Coda, but I haven't. I've actually never seen Life is Beautiful, so maybe I shouldn't say anything negative about it. But yeah. Um, so Josh hates his parents and deaf people so far in this episode. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. I don't know what else there is to say. I feel like uh, you know, I'm, I'm spending yeah. my whole time defending this movie that I didn't even like that much. So Yeah. yeah. Really, you're <laughs> the one who needs to look in the mirror and think about what you're doing in your life. Let's rate this thing, Josh. Yeah. Out of... Uh, Five uh, alcoholic drinks because, like the dad, I would have liked to get drunk. Yeah, five little tiny cups of sake. It takes a lot to get drunk on those little tiny cups. Yeah, honestly, two sakes for me. Oof. That's it. That two is, out of five. That is a low. Is that the lowest rating for this season? Or no? You rated Doctor T lower, I think. Yeah, that's the worst movie we might have ever watched. Man, Jason is just having a terrible time this season. <laughs> I am going to give it three cups of sake which is a very low rating for one of the greatest films of all time. And like I said, it wasn't my favorite or anything, but I appreciated it more and I feel like I can reflect on it and appreciate it as well. So Dave, what do you give Citizen Kane? I mean, I'd probably give Citizen Kane four out of five. I haven't seen it in a long time, so I don't know, yeah. but I like Citizen Kane more than this. Definitely. See, and that's a three for me. So we're just getting all the right. barometer. This is, this is our new podcast. Jason hates the greatest films of all time. <laughs> yeah. What a, yeah. Who doesn't want to listen to that? Yeah. So. That sounds great. That sounds great. <laughs> so Dave, what's your rating? I, I, I gave it a three, but uh, it's a very, a very soft three. And by the way, I gave Citizen Kane four and a half. I really like that movie. Dave taking a bold stance of liking Citizen Kane. I <laughs> yeah. like Citizen Kane. Yeah. What can I say? Josh, you did better than I was. I would have played off Dave saying it was a very soft three, but go on. <laughs> All right. Let's just uh, come back and talk about the legacy of Tokyo Story. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1953, we are talking about Yasujiro Ozu's Tokyo Story. And I mean, legacy-wise, we've been talking this whole episode about that sight and sound poll, which is probably the most prestigious sort of judge of the greatest films of all time. It launched in, in 1952, before Tokyo Story was even made. And this movie has been on the list since 1992. I think in part just because it took a while for it to disseminate widely enough for people to have seen it to be able to vote for it. But in 1992, it placed third. In 2002, it placed fifth. It placed third again in 2012. And as we've said in this most recent poll in 2022, it placed fourth. And in 2012, there's a sort of separate sub poll that's just polling directors. It, 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 in addition to the overall poll that includes a lot of critics and academics. And in the 2012 version of the director's poll, it actually placed at number one. So um, there's your Tarantino uh, contribution I mean, right there. Yeah, who, 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 who was in charge of that poll? The Dardan brothers? I mean, I bet they did vote. <laughs> <laughs> 
more acclaimed international masterpiece yeah. cinema that Jason hates. What an esoteric film joke that I've made. So. Yes, although um, a callback to an episode of our podcast, so that's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. I mean, it's a poll. People voted on it. You know. Yes. You're telling me there's 62 better movies than Goodfellas? Okay, fuck faces. All right. Well. <laughs> Um, and not only, I mean, we don't have to go through them all, but there are many, 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 many other polls about the greatest films of all time, the greatest foreign films, the greatest films of the 20th century, whatever standard yeah, you want. Yeah, it's to always up the top. Yeah, here. yeah. I mean, Kai, Jason's favorite, Cahiers du Cinema, Entertainment Weekly, The Village Voice, all of these renowned institutions that have ranked it very, very highly on, on various lists. I, looking through this list, it felt very stodgy. And it felt like the new ones or the big movers that they put in where they put in were like, see, look, we're hip. Look at how hip we are. Come on, we're hip. Come on, guys, we're hip. We wouldn't tell you we're hip if we weren't hip. I mean, it just felt very old hundreds of different people. You think these people had a giant meeting deciding how hip they were? I'm just telling you my impression of the list and why I will never work in Hollywood ever again. After this <laughs> I mean, this is like, it's a prestigious <laughs> list, but it's, you know, it's certainly not a Hollywood thing. You know, it's not like Hollywood is eager for the next Tokyo story. That is definitely not <laughs> happening. You walk into a studio pitch meeting and you say, my movie is like Tokyo story. And then the meeting ends, I think. Yeah. So uh, you're good. You're fine. Uh, thank goodness. Because it's going so well. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. so Ozu, Jason, as, as we were talking about, was a huge major filmmaker in Japan from the silent era. He's made his first film in 1927. A lot of those of which are lost and very, very prolific throughout his entire life. Um, he was making films up until right before his death in 1963. And really after his death, I feel, you know, again, this movie didn't even make it to the U S until nine years after Ozu died. And his reputation just built and built and built internationally and to the point where he is. I mean, I'm sure if there are lists of the greatest directors of all time, he's way up there as well. Yeah. And he did 25 movies with his co-writer on this Kogo Nada. You know, I think a lot of those were silence or shorts. But again, we're in this era where everyone is so prolific. Chisu Ryu, the man who played the father, was in 160 films and 70 TV shows and 14 Ozu movies. And uh Setsuko Hara uh, was a well-known stage actor for her work in The Cherry Orchard and appeared in 60 movies. They were all just working, 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 working. Yeah, I mean, all the stars of this film are hugely prolific. Um, Ryu, I think, Chishu Ryu was one of Ozu's favorites. And what I was impressed with is that he was, he who plays the old man in this, he was only 47 when he made this film and they they made him up to look like an old man. And I, I will say the performance here is convincing. I would not necessarily have guessed that he was that young. Like Wilford Brimley in Cocoon. Yes, that is the most apt comparison that you can possibly make. Um, yeah, I was fascinated to read about Setsuko Hara, who, as I said, is, is uh, considered possibly the greatest Japanese actress of all time. And she was very, very prolific during the time that she was working, including making six films with Ozu. But she retired from acting in 1963, basically right when Ozu died, although she made films with other directors as well, and basically just retreated to her home, gave no interviews, made no appearances for the next 50 plus years until dying in 2015. Mm. So I think that 
is something that kind of burnishes that reputation, right? She makes all these great movies. She doesn't have a decline. She doesn't have a period of like not getting work or whatever. She just disappears, doesn't give interviews, doesn't say anything dumb, doesn't get canceled like, you know, Brigitte Bardot or someone like that, lives her life into her 90s, dies, and that reputation is fully intact. So that's your advice mm. for those of you young ingenues out there. Yes. Disappear. Retire, disappear for 50 years. <laughs> that's the way to do it. That's what I'd do. But I mean, after you've, of course, made 60 movies right. first. I mean, I feel like that's not something, but we do have some people like that. I mean, you look at like Bridget Fonda or someone like that, who basically made a bunch of movies at a certain point was like, I'm done. And it's been 20 years and she hasn't made a movie she has well and again you know with bridget fonda we know part of that is uh health and mental health and we you know this could have been the same thing this is a different time and different culture so maybe she just said i have to get out and i'm gonna live my life quietly and that's that yeah we don't know the reason and that's part of the the sort of enigma of it um hey josh tell us about a time you've kicked your parents out of your house (laughs) what passive aggressive reason did you give them no i mean i feel like i can relate to the idea that sometimes family staying with you is a burden as much as you love them you can't tell me that you disagree with that jason oh of course but i've documented my family issues on this show many times (laughs) i if my parents come visit they they have to get a hotel that's the rule yeah i mean i i i if it's possible i think that is always a, a nicer uh more comfortable thing for everyone. But yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's something that you can identify with here. Cause, because to me, again, it's not that these kids are evil. It's just that it's hard and they don't maybe think it through. I do think the kids don't really appreciate their parents. Yeah. I did want to mention one other, you know, you talked about remakes. There's another film from more recently called love is strange by Ira Sachs. That's clearly heavily influenced by this starring John Lithgow and Alfred Molina as this aging gay couple who get, again, like in Make Way for Tomorrow, they actually get evicted from where they live and they have to, they don't have children, but they have like nieces and nephews and younger friends. And they're just kind of bouncing around trying to not impose, but also knowing that they need to impose. And that's a very well acted film that was highly acclaimed. As well. I also like the song Love is Strange. It's possibly inspired by that. I don't know. Dave, take it. No, no singing. Love no, is strange. No, 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 no. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> um, and I also I wanted to mention the the Japanese filmmaker Hirokazu Koreeda, who is one of my absolute favorite directors working right now, and is heavily influenced by Ozu, and is actually one of the reasons why I was excited to see this because I thought, oh, if this is like a Koreeda film, I will love this. And there's lots of Koreeda films where you could say nothing happens, and it's just about family relationships and quiet moments, and those do that like. That's an example of a movie like like uh, Nobody Knows or Our Little Sister, which are a couple of Koreeda movies where I definitely was like bawling watching those movies. And they have a yeah. lot of similarities to this. And it just didn't it didn't connect with me. Yeah. I mean, in more recent years, uh, I, Driveways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that I love that movie. Yep. That was one of my favorite movies of the year that it came out. Uh, you know, that's one of Brian Dennehy's last performance, maybe his last performance. Right. And, yeah. Again, it's like it's a very small story, right? Uh, very, um, and it just focuses on these little relationships and how they are, and that's it. That's it. And so, like, you know, nothing against this style of movie, but definitely something against the fourth greatest movie ever made. Yeah, 
So, but maybe one of the legacies of this film is that it influenced a lot of other films that we actually really do like. It's just not this one. Mm -hmm. Oh, stop looking for a bright side. Sorry. Change. Sorry for trying to find a silver lining in this. By the way, I saw Love is Strange. I'm just realizing that now. And it's really good. Yeah, it's a good movie. It was, I mean, I, that was a high, like it was on a lot of top 10 lists that year and everything. It was a, you know, very, very highly acclaimed film. So. No. I, do you want to say anything else about the legacy of Tokyo Story? Nah, nah, Josh. I think I think you know respect, but uh, from a distance, sir. I got no respect from that. Anything that you said in this episode, but <laughs> exactly what I uh, see, Josh. It's it's just how you interpret it, much mm. like how you interpret the film. That's a good mm -hmm. point. So, yeah, that are you saying I'm like Minoru and Isamu? The little bastard grandsons in here josh because i don't appreciate <laughs> they that. Get, see they were super ungrateful they just yeah. were like fuck this and ran away yeah you are like them yes so wow. mm -hmm. that is tokyo story and that is this episode of awesome movie year tell your parents to find us online <laughs> and on social media yeah because your parents are so good at social media look at their fifth facebook post today uh we're on all the social medias at awesome movie year uh, except on Twitter, we're Awesome Movie Pod. Everybody, Awesome Movie Pod. AwesomeMovieYear.com has an RSS feed. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on uh, all the socials. Guess what, Josh? I have a website coming out soon. Ooh, but it's not for a go for Jason, so oh. who cares? Um, okay. But Eat This Comedy and the Trivia Party, they're still uh, on Instagram also. All right. Well, you can find me at JoshBellHatesEverything.com. At Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd. And listen to our producer David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. Jason, what is in our next episode? Josh, it's my pick. It is an early Marlon Brando film and one of the Maybe the most essential forerunner to biker culture movies, right, of the 60s. It's The Wild One. So tune in next time to see if Jason likes his own pick. And <laughs> it's going to be listening. his least favorite of the season. Just wait. It's possible. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.